Hey there, welcome to another edition of LiveWire. I'm Luke Burbank. We have a fun show for you this week. We are going to be talking to Lulu Miller, one of the hosts of Radiolab. Uh, she's also written this fascinating book. It's called Why Fish Don't Exist. And in it, she talks about a pep talk that her dad gave her at the age of seven that shaped the rest of her life. So, you know, no pressure, parents of America. Uh, speaking of parents, Sopan Deb is a New York Times reporter who had the unique experience of being sort of abandoned by his parents when he was already an adult. So he went and tracked them down to try to figure out what exactly happened, and he's going to tell us about that. All that, plus we've got music from Livewire favorite Maria Massa. That is the plan for the next hour. Don't go anywhere. It's going to be a good show, which gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Luke, hi. How's it going? It's going really well. It's a beautiful summer weekend. Before we started recording, you were mentioning that you are having these little moments of, of, of sort of normal life coming back <laughs> that are so great. I think we can all sort of relate right now. Yeah, I printed out a piece of paper and hand wrote comments on it. You know, I'm editing student work as I always am. Uh, uh -huh. And I didn't have to do like track changes. I got to send a physical document with my handwritten grade on it. Who knew? That you would miss sending actual physical <laughs> paperwork to people. But I mean, even that feels like, hey, nature heaven. is healing. Yeah, yeah, no digital signatures, right? Yeah. Well, are you ready to do our little radio show? I am. Let's do it. All right. Molly, are we recording this whole thing? Hi, Luke. We're rolling. All right, then. Take it away, Elena. From PRX, it's LiveWire. This week with Radio Lab host Lulu Miller, writer and comedian Sopan Deb, and music from Maria Massa. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of LiveWire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thanks so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Fun show in store for you this week. Uh, of course, we asked the LiveWire listeners a question. We asked, uh, tell us something that fascinates you that no one else seems to care about. <laughs> we don't really answer the audience questions anymore, you and me, Elena, but I feel like 
if this one were left to us, we could fill a good two to three hours. Oh, yeah. We're leaving it, though, to the <laughs> listeners this week, and we're going to read you those answers coming up in a bit. First, though, we got to kick things off with the best news we heard all week. This, of course, our little top of the show segment where we remind ourselves and the listeners that there's good stuff happening out there in the world. Elena, what is the best news that you heard all week? Okay, I think this is actually maybe a couple weeks old, but I just heard about it this week. So it is literally the best news I have heard all week. I don't even know if it's the best news, but it is the best work by a news agency. (laughs) All right. Okay. I'm I'm curious. Okay. So um, a new discovery in eel culture, in the world of eels, uh, you know, a moray eel, they have long suspected uh, and described this like secondary set of jaws that allows it to pull prey deeper into its mouth. Because eels needed to be more terrifying. Yeah. Now we find out about the second set of teeth. I mean, they're quite, to me, kind of slightly intimidating animals. Well, maybe this will chill you out a little bit about it because um, there's video that exists of these tests that they've been running to see exactly how these pharyngeal jaws that were only described like 15 years ago, how they work. So there's researchers who are showing this eel climbing out of the water on a little ramp and then a pair of tweezers puts a little piece of squid at the top of the ramp and the eel launches himself up and then uses those jaws to help pull the squid into its mouth. Um, So that's really what the article was about and to to showcase that video. And the headline in the (laughs) New York Times was... When an eel climbs a clamp to eat squid from a ramp, that's a moray. <laughs> <laughs> that is very, very high-level wordplay from the old New York Times. Oh, but it gets better because they had multiple videos. So if you scroll down, the caption of the second video is, if the squid is too flat, there's no problem with that. That's a moray. Wow. <laughs> You scroll down even further and there's another video and the caption is, if the squid is too big, it still eats like a pig. That's amore. <laughs> I was so full of joy and pleasure and light and life and energy. Like sometimes puns yeah. are so bad and good at the same time that it's like a transcendental experience. <laughs> Plus you love music. And I always, I appreciate how wide the range of music is that gets you excited. So you pro- you could probably give us 20 minutes on Dean Martin right now. Just interesting facts about him. Oh, so yeah. The idea that you have... Dean Martin, someone that you probably like. I mean, a song very associated with him. Oh, yeah. And then wordplay, and then it's in the New York Times. I mean, that's the trifecta for one Elena Passarella. Yeah, it's like a head explosion of joy. (laughs) (laughs) All right, the best news that I saw this week actually came out of uh, near your hometown, Elena, down there in Atlanta, Georgia, where there were a couple of women that worked in the IT department at Children's Healthcare in Atlanta. They've been working there for around a decade, and they knew each other in that way that if you work at a big office, you know people, which is you see them in the hall, you say something pleasant but noncommittal, <laughs> some mm-hmm. weather we're having as you're <laughs> on your way to whatever it is you're doing, right? That was the level of friendship between these two women, Tia Wimbush and Susan Ellis. Until they found out that both of their husbands, unfortunately, had suffered kidney failure and were on the transplant list waiting (gasps) for a kidney donor match. And they were talking about this one day in the women's restroom. They were literally like washing their hands, 
discussing what's going on with their respective husbands. And one of them asked the other, hey, what's your blood type, by the way? And the one said, it's this. And then she said, but but what's your blood type? And the other one said, it's this. And they realized that they were a match for each other's husbands. Holy cannoli. And so they got their blood taken. They went through all the tests. And it turned out that, yes, in fact, they could give a kidney to the other person's husband, which is, in fact, exactly what they did. All four people went in for surgery on the same day. Oh, my God. You got to kind of, I think, have everybody there for this kind of a procedure. Now, I think maybe the most amazing part of the story is that uh, Tia Wimbush, it turns out, after she got all the testing done, amazingly was a match for her own husband when it was all said and done. But she was also a match for the other woman's husband who had a very rare blood type. So she still gave her kidney to the other lady's husband, even oh. though she could have given it to her own husband, because that was a more rare event. I mean, can this you believe it? This is amazing. It? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is like something out of a, like a Hallmark movie or something. I mean, if it isn't, it should be. Is everybody doing okay? Everybody is doing great, which the doctors also say is pretty unusual in that neither of the men who received the transplants have been suffering any rejection or adverse kind of medical effects. Like, this is like one of the more amazing, uh, you know, sets of kidney transplants that anyone's ever heard of. None of the doctors who worked on it had ever heard of anything like this happening. Everybody is doing really well. And these families are now best friends. Ah, Like, how could you not be, right? That is, that's, I'm trying to come up with like a, that's a more a pun with it. That's like, <laughs> you know, like when your friend at your work, has a husband who's not a jerk, give a kidney, but I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> that was actually pretty good. That was uh, better than I anything know. I was going to come up with. It missed the glory of that story because that is incredible. I guess the lesson is you never know that person that you've been making awkward small talk with when it's like, it's uh, the Tuesday birthdays. Hey, everyone, it's Sharon's birthday. Let's all go down to the to the kitchen and stand around. You know, get to know that person because it might save your spouse's life someday. I just realized that I would never be able to have this experience with any of my colleagues because I don't know my blood type. I don't either. Oh, you don't? Oh, great. So no. let's just give each other kidneys and just see what happens. See, Yeah, you know what? Throw it up against the wall. See if it sticks. So that's the best news that I heard all week. All right, this is Live Wire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Let's welcome our first guest on over to the show. He is a writer for the New York Times. Uh, he's also a stand-up comedian, and he's the author of the book Mistranslations, Meeting the Immigrant Parents Who Raised Me. He's Sopan Deb, who we are catching up with today, I believe, in South Carolina. Sopan, welcome to Livewire. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you're known for writing um, about the NBA and, and also politics for the New York Times and also being a stand-up comic. Uh, but this book is actually uh, about your really complicated relationship with your parents. How did you decide to write about that? You know, I, I was turning uh, 30 and I realized I hadn't seen my dad in about 11 years and my mom in about four or five years. And I hadn't, I, I didn't even know where they were living at the time. Um, my parents were, um, were arranged to get married in the seventies and they had a terrible arranged marriage, but they didn't get divorced because, um, uh, you know, in South Asian culture, divorce is very stigmatized. So they stayed together, but we grew up in this household where we never spoke to each other. We never got to know each other at all. So at the time I began writing this book, I didn't even know a, where my parents were living 
how they came to the U.S., um, how they met, when their birthdays were, how old they were. I didn't know very basic facts about them. The book essentially tracks the year of my life as I try to reconnect with them and answer all these questions about them because um, I didn't want it to be too late, you know, because um, – you know, my parents are older now, and I mean, I didn't know how old when I started writing the book, but I assumed they were older <laughs> than me. Um, so, um, yeah. it's uh, a safe assumption. Yeah, I'm no genealogist, but right. that nose for journalism, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, I, I honestly, I just didn't want to get bad news, and and for that bad news to come without me having these very basic um, conversations with them about who they were as people. I, I think it might be a little hard for people that grew up in a different kind of household to sort of understand even what that looks like, because it, it, it didn't seem that your parents had any animosity towards you. There was not like, uh, drugs or mental health issues. It was just, it was sort of like a functional home where everybody lived as roommates. Like what did that look like on a day-to-day basis? Well, the analogy I would say is like, we, you know, if you went to college and you had had a college roommate that you just, you just shared a space together and then that was it. You didn't talk about your days. You didn't talk about what your lives were like. You didn't, you know, you just shared the same space. That's what my relationship with my family was. And there was an animosity of like, you know, drinking and drugs. The animosity was, you know, almost towards assimilation and and the country and the culture, uh, you know. And look, my, for example, my parents, you know, they got arranged to get married. My mom didn't want to marry my father. Uh, my father didn't know that until really, I think, after they got married. And usually you want to know that before you get married. That's yeah. one of those yeah. things you want to yeah. you want to hash that, out before. I found that out in a couple of my marriages too, um, <laughs> right. which were arranged by me. Weirdly, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, we just didn't. We honestly, you know, we didn't go on family trips. We didn't have a lot of dinners together. There wasn't a lot of bonding. Right. There, there just wasn't a lot of communication. We were just sharing the same space. We were occupying the same universe, but in some ways we weren't of the same universe. And it didn't help that I think we grew up in a very white town. Oh, I grew up in a town called Howell, New Jersey, which is near Point Pleasant Beach, uh, which is if you guys remember the MTV show, uh, the Jersey Shore, that's where oh, yes. the Jersey Shore was filmed. And so I grew up around mostly people that didn't look like me. So this is a very different world. Um, and so um, that's kind of where the the schism came from. Yeah, you know, you were a, uh, a brown person living in a predominantly white part of the country. And you write in the book about how that created this weird tension for you where you were kind of going away from that or, or you didn't love that about yourself. But then also when you start getting into stand-up comedy, it's the most comfortable thing for you to talk about on stage. Yeah. So when, when I was growing up, I kind of blamed, I had this kind of internal self-loathing racism against my brown skin because what I did was I falsely and irrationally conflated my parents' bad marriage with mm. like Indian culture as a whole. I said, you know what? Why do I want to be Hindu? Why would I want to be brown if if this is the culture that brought together these mismatched parents and then I had to grow up in this environment? And I very falsely and irrationally conflated kind of safety and skin color. And then once I started doing stand-up, this was probably now at this point eight years ago, give or take. At that point, I I, I started off doing like kind of like 
my best impression of like Mitch Hedberg and Jerry Seinfeld. Uh-huh. And then I started talking about like being brown. And I was like, oh, I feel oddly comfortable making these jokes, even though I spent my whole life running away from that identity. It was a very odd dichotomy for me on stage. And part of my journey on this book was to be like, oh, maybe you actually feel a lot more comfortable with this than you realize because you've been doing it on stage. So you might as well, you know, uh, be the part instead of just looking the part. This is Livewire Radio. We're talking to Sopan Deb. Uh, His new book is Mistranslations. We do have to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. Probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork Mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Point is, we... We are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content. Uh, And, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are talking to writer Sopan Deb, whose new book is Mistranslations, Meeting the Immigrant Parents Who Raised Me. Um, did you pitch the book or, or sort of come up with the idea before you'd written the book that this was going to be about actually reconnecting with your parents? Yes, but what makes this book different than other books is that the book very genuinely captures a year of my life. So when I was writing chapter two, I did not know what was going to happen in chapter three or chapter 10. Wow. Um, There are a lot of plot twists and there's a lot of drama in the book. And there's a lot of discoveries I make about my parents. I had no idea when I pitched the book, when I was thinking about it, that I was going to come across that. It just happened to be by chance that I'm finding out all this stuff. Like, And a good example is – you know, my dad, when I was 18, when I was a freshman in college, he left the country and moved back to India without telling anybody. He just left. And that's part of the reason I hadn't seen him in a decade. What I found out is that my dad got into a pretty serious car accident mm-hmm. in the, you know, uh, during my freshman year at Boston University where I went to college. And, you know, he was got pretty seriously hurt. And when he made it home, he kind of looked around and he said, um, you know what? I'm not close with my sons. 
I don't have any family here I'm close with. America hasn't worked out for me. You know, I'm just going to head back because I got into the serious car accident and I can't even tell my children about it because I don't think they'll care. And that was a very sad thing for me to hear as a son to be like, oh, my God, my own father felt like I wouldn't care that he got into a car accident. So he left the country to go back to where he felt more at home. And I didn't know about this car accident until I went to India when I was 30 to to hear that story. And that was a very difficult conversation to have. But when I when I pitched the book, that was all stuff that I did not know. Wow. That is a brave move to start writing uh, a book without knowing how things were going to turn out. Um, one of the many things that were surprising to me in this book was that he seemed to be living his best life oh, in man. India. Like, I did not think that's how that was going to go. <laughs> I mean, that makes two of us. I mean, so I get off the plane. <laughs> I get off the plane in India, in Kolkata. So remember, the last time I saw my father was 11 years prior. And he'd come to visit me at Boston University, and we had lunch. And I remember thinking at the time that he looked kind of tired and haggard and as if like life had kind of beaten him down as, as if he was like he looked unhealthy. And so I was expecting that, but 11 years worse. Right. right. And man, I'll tell you, my fiance and I, we, uh, you know, we get off the plane, we're on the sidewalk and we see this guy coming towards us and he looks tanned toned he looks like he looks fit he's wearing um you know a very iron dress shirt and 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 he looks good and he has more hair than i do and i'm like what happened here like, what and he's like telling us in the in in the uh, car ride back to uh, the hotel you know i i've taken up golfing and i play tennis and multiple times a week and, and i swim and i've joined a, i've joined a cosmology club and i take classes and he very much reinvented himself in a way that was really unexpected to me. There's a moment in India where you put down your journalist's recorder and have this big conversation with your dad. And then there's another moment uh, later in the book where you do the same thing with your mother back in New York after seeing the musical Chicago. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> and when I was reading it, I thought, you know, this is this is a big moment for any child to have with their parents, but you trained as a journalist. You were uh, on the campaign trail with the Trump campaign. Do you think your journalism training better prepared you for that moment? Oh, 100% um, for huh. a couple of reasons. I, I, that was a purposeful choice. And the reason, if you look at a lot of culture in the U.S. that features immigrant stories, they're often focused on the children of immigrants. They're often mm -hmm. focused on um the wrongs of the parents. Oh, uh, the parents are too restrictive. Or, oh, the parents, mm -hmm. you know, are, are forcing so-and-so to get married or whatever. It's often very children-focused. And so I did not want this book to be about grievances toward my parents. So mm -hmm. I, I, what I wanted it to be was a genuine exploration of who these my parents were. And so when I sat down to talk to them, I wanted to come at it as a journalist before I was their their son and mm -hmm. by coming at it as a journalist what it allowed me to do was i was in theory coming at it as an unbiased observer it allowed me to look in the mirror and say okay here are your parents but here's what you contributed to the situation to maybe mm -hmm. cause some animosity or whatever so that that's where being a journalist was very helpful because it allowed me to detach myself. If I came at them as like, hey, you know what, you guys, I haven't spoken to you in many years. We didn't talk growing up. And why were you guys, you know, distant parents? How could you be like that? That causes defensiveness. And mm -hmm. and ultimately, that wasn't going to be productive, I don't think. Um, 
to to make this into a worthwhile experience for not just me, but also for my parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we're talking to Sopan Deb about his book, Mistranslations. Um, your parents, I assume, have uh, read the book. Do they feel like it's fair to them? How, what's their take on it? So they read a manuscript a year before the book came out because I, I, of course, didn't want to surprise them. But it was difficult for them to read it. Um, Mm. Look, if we all three of us wrote our own versions of mistranslations, they would be three very, very different books. That's A. B, in South Asian culture, we don't put our stuff out there. You know, we don't just, we don't talk about this stuff. We don't even talk about this stuff internally, let alone outwardly, you know? And so, so it was difficult for the room. There were several very difficult, at times, very contentious conversations. But I will say to my parents' credit that eventually... I, I will say they understood what I was trying to do. And then mm-hmm. my dad had a very funny reaction. My dad goes, you've written a book. That's so great. I'm very proud of you. You've inspired me. I will now write my own book on my life called The Untold Story. Oh, so my dad, it's funny. It's a, the time is happening. My dad actually sent me his book, which <gasps> last week or the week before, and I just opened it up about an hour or so before I came on this Zoom. And it oh, my actually, God. Yeah, and, and, and I was reading through it, and it's actually quite – extensive and quite interesting and really documents the the immigrant experience in a way that you know is really eye-opening and and it, it's it's a document that i you know i'm going to pass on to my my children you know if, if that happens you know and it was great it's wonderful to read and i think the big difference between my generation and the generation before me is that our parents theirs was a struggle to survive and me you know growing up in middle class new jersey my my struggle was like, okay, I'm going to go, what college do I go to? And and I want to become an improv comedian, so I'm going to take improv classes. And I want I have a crush on the girl down the street, so I'm going to date the girl down the street. Whereas my parents, you know, when they came to this country, they're like, well, how are we going to put food on the table, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a totally different worldview that my parents and I have. And that was something, that's probably the biggest takeaway I had in this process of getting to my parents. And the other thing too about this book is, and I'm not giving anything away, but it, it's like, it reflects real life. I mean, you were talking mm-hmm. about how your real life was occurring as you were writing it, as in you mm-hmm. didn't really know how the next chapter was going to go, et cetera. It's not like the end of the book is like, and then everybody hugged. I think it reflects the real kind of nature of relationships, particularly parent-child relationships, and how complicated they are, and how this remains for you probably a lifetime project, figuring it out along with them, what your guys' relationship is going to look like. 100%. I mean, this is not... It's not like you get to the end of the book and my my parents and I are having like Christmas turkey and 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 the credits roll. You know, it's that's mm-hmm. not what the, that's not what happens. Um, you know, my parents even to this day we're in an evolving relationship. There are highs and there are lows. These are wounds that don't heal immediately. Mm-hmm. They may they will probably never heal. That's, that's not how life works. But we tried. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a very important thing. And now they're humans to me. And that's a big step forward. You know, is it like Ray Barone in Everybody Loves Raymond with <laughs> Marie and Frank living across the street? No, it's I not like not, that. because that didn't seem so healthy either. Yeah, <laughs> they were not happy. <laughs> so, but it's, but um, it's, not, it's not like that because life isn't like that. But, yeah, but it's yeah. better than what it used to be. And that's a big step. Yeah, that's huge. Well, Sopan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was Sopan Deb. Here on LiveWire, his book is Missed Translations, Meeting the Immigrant Parents Who Raised Me. Uh, In addition to uh, continuing his writing for the New York Times, he writes about sports. Sopan also has a novel coming out next year called The Elm Tree. 
Hey, special thanks this episode to Catherine Jones of Frederick, Maryland, and Jeffrey Tilson of beautiful Paulsbo, Washington. Catherine and Jeffrey are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting the show with a donation each month, which is a really big deal because it's how we're able to keep doing Livewire. So a huge thanks this week to Catherine and Jeffrey for keeping this whole thing going. You're listening to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Each week uh, on the show, we like to ask the Livewire audience a question, and then uh, people answer through social media, and we collect those up. Uh, This week, the question was, what's something that fascinates you that no one else seems to care about? Uh, What is the audience saying, Elena? Here's one from Amanda, all caps. Uh Uh-oh. Where are all the baby pigeons? I think I know the answer, but I'm not 100% sure. Well, you know, the good news is if we get it wrong, there's nothing that public radio listeners enjoy Mm -hmm. more than correcting public radio shows. So you'll give someone something to do this weekend. So take a shot. Where are the pigeon babies? Because I've never seen one. Pigeons don't nest in trees, right? Another name for pigeon is rock dove. And I think they build little enclaves in buildings. So you're you're not walking under them in Central Park or whatever. And I think they rear their young in a stationary capacity and they they grow up really quickly. But then again, like, it's true, though. You never see, like, a little little baby. You know where you might see one, though? I never see baby any birds, though. Where might you see one? You might see one in, like, a Home Depot or a Lowe's because there's a whole (laughs) culture. I just read an article this week about this. A whole culture of the birds that live in those giant Home Depots. Oh, my God. Because you know how you go in there yeah. and you like, see birds flying around? Or it's airport. kind of an indoor-outdoor space. Yeah. And the, the, the employees of those places, according to this article, are really divided. Some of them love the birds. They name the birds. Oh. They come back and visit them when they go work somewhere else. Some of them are not fans of getting pooped on while they're just trying to restock the drywall. <laughs> so, so people love those birds. Some people are, are not fans, but that is where there are some pigeon families living. Maybe that's where the babies are. I love pigeons. That's the only reason I would ever have to go to a Home Depot, to be perfectly honest. Is to see the pigeons. Yeah. What else uh, are our listeners fascinated with that not that many other people care about? Oh, here's one from Mike. Okay. Mike is obsessed with the Nixon administration, which is you know, I would have kind of been like, but I just read this amazing book okay. by a man named Timothy Denevi, and it was about how Hunter S. Thompson kind of grew and changed as a political reporter. Yeah. And really, he just had it out for Richard Nixon from 1960 to 1973. Doesn't the opening of Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, it's Hunter S. Thompson and Nixon <laughs> driving somewhere, talking football. With, yep. I know Hunter has a drink in his lap. Yes. No, no. Yeah, that's right. They talk about whether or not Minnesota Vikings are going to be able to yeah. win the the thing, yeah. But it, yeah, like the machinations of the Nixon administration, not only are kind of like OMG, but they're terrifyingly prescient. Yeah, it's a really great book. It's called Freak Kingdom. So um, I don't know, maybe Mike should check it out. Also, uh, not that we should probably be pointing people in lots of other directions radio-wise <laughs> uh, or podcast-wise, but there's a great podcast that actually Rachel Maddow, the TV host. Hosted. It's a podcast about Spiro Agnew. Because oh. what you forget is that, like, after the Nixon thing, also the vice president went down for an unrelated situation of mm-hmm. accepting money, mm-hmm. like, in an envelope. 
mm-hmm. in the White House. With like Spiro written on the top Old of it. Old school graft going on. So, yeah. And here's something that's interesting that nobody probably knows or cares about. When he was under investigation, all of the Republican members of Congress gave him one of those hang in their baby cat posters of the cat <laughs> hanging off the tree. He got one of the first ones, the year, the year of the hang in their baby poster. And like everyone else who has one of those hanging in their office, it did zero good. No. <laughs> it made absolutely no positive impact on Nixon's ability to hang in there, baby. Okay, one more quick one before we get to our Lulu Miller chat. Uh, this one's going to haunt your dreams. Are you ready? Okay. Rosanna yeah. is fascinated by sinkholes. Mm. I yeah. am now, I know exactly what I'm doing when we're done. Like I'm going to go down a Wikipedia sinkhole about sinkholes. There was a gas station not that far from my house when I was a kid that got swallowed by a sinkhole or at least a large part of the parking lot. <clears throat> and you just drive by it and you just like have this realization that, oh yeah, you know, uh, all of this could go away at any moment. Yeah. It's a, it's like a real clear visual reminder of that we're sort of existing on this crust. Yes. Right? But there's a lot going on underneath, which is I'm sure a metaphor for something. That's what we need to round out this year. It's just like- right? A little, more, a little more anxiety for our listeners. Hey, speaking of being fascinated with things, uh, that other people maybe don't care about a ton. Um, Our next guest, Lulu Miller, spent like a decade of her life researching this turn-of-the-century scientist that you might not have heard of. His name was David Starr Jordan, and he was obsessed with trying to identify and name every unknown fish that he could in the world. The book is Why Fish Don't Exist, And I can tell you this, it does not end the way that you are thinking it's going to. Uh, She's also a Peabody Award-winning science reporter and one of the hosts of the amazing public radio show, Radio Lab. Lulu Miller, welcome to Livewire. Hi. Lulu, this book is really amazing. Um, And I feel like I learned so much uh, about the main character, but then also about you. And I've kind of known you for a long time, but there was a lot of elements of your life that I was not familiar with until I read this book. Um, let's start with the uh, kind of ostensible lead character, this guy, David Starr Jordan. When did you first hear the name and David Starr Jordan and, and why did it intrigue you? So he was an anecdote, a nameless anecdote on a tour of a science museum, a, a thing you should let go and never think about again. Um, but I had heard this tale that um, his collection had been nearly ruined in the 1906 earthquake Thousands of bottles were broken. He was a fish collector. 30 years of work, basically undone in one instant. Um, Many of the fish were still intact, but their names in this almost biblical event were separated from the jars. Um, And instead of giving up and, and maybe heeding the message that chaos rules and the work of taxonomy trying to order the natural world is inherently doomed, this crazy dude kept going. Um, And he invented this technique, which to me is so human, where he started sewing the labels directly into the fish themselves. Um, in, and there was just something about that act, that refusal to back down, that desire to keep humanity's knowledge sewn onto nature um, that made me curious about him. But this event that, that happened, um, I think he was in like at Stanford, that was the second time that all of his stuff got destroyed, basically? Yes, and the first time was by lightning. 
his first collection burnt to the ground. It was struck by lightning and burnt to the ground. And actually his his collection before that was thrown out by his mom. So like the world Wait, so he had three collections destroyed. This guy who wanted his deal was he wanted to catalog every freshwater fish in North America that had yet to be named. And three times exactly. his collection gets destroyed basically, but he doesn't take that as a sign. Exactly. And so like how confident or brazen, who are you to, to not take that as a sign? And that's what I was really curious about. I thought I'd write a two page long poetic essay about sort of man versus chaos. And then 10 years went by and I spent a lot of my life with an obscure dead ichthyologist uh, <laughs> named David Starr Jordan. And here we are. Uh, yeah. Well, right, because, Lulu, this book, as I mentioned, is is about your life, too. Like, where were you at in your life when you started to get really obsessed with this fish collector? Yeah, so I was in a very lost place. I'd worked at Radiolab for a long time, and I left that for the lucrative career of fiction writing, was mm -hmm. not feeling confident about that. I'd ruined a relationship, a seven-year relationship, and I was just, I was just feeling really lost and unsure of how to move forward and sort of feeling like my confidence and my intuition had led me astray and that maybe I needed to stop listening to my heart. Um, and that's when this guy started tugging at me. I think I initially dismissed him as a fool and I thought to be that brazen in the face of signs that what you're doing is not going to work is, is going to lead to humiliation. But this tiny hopeful part of me wondered well, how did things end for him? He's a real person. I could go find out. And so that's, I, I wanted to basically read him like a parable, which is journalistically mm. sinful and wrong, but that's where I was. I wanted a parable. Uh, this is the Live Warehouse Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We're talking to Lulu Miller about her book, Why Fish Don't Exist. Um, it sounds like in the book anyway, a big part of your young life and, and even into early adulthood was shaped by what you might say is the world's worst pep talk that your dad gave you <laughs> when you were like seven. Yeah, <laughs> like, you could call it I mean, that. I don't know. I mean, what, what, what did he tell you? I was sort of looking at the horizon and wondering the meaning of it all. And I asked him literally, what is the meaning of life? And he took this delightful pause, raised his eyebrow and said, nothing. And then he went on what felt like a lecture he'd been wanting to give me forever, where he just said, there's no point, there's no meaning, there's no magic, there's no afterlife, there's no God. Uh, the universe doesn't care about your intentions and it will, it made you accidentally and will kill you soon. Hooray! Yeah. <laughs> How did that impact you going forward to get that very bleak picture of the world? Well, it was a puzzle because he's a very joyful man. Um, he's a scientist. He, he loves people. He loves the world. And so I thought, okay, if I accept those things, I become joyful like dad. Um, but it didn't always work that way for me. I mean, I think on one hand, like, of course, there's a beautiful carpe diem quality to that. If nothing matters, do what you want. Great. Um, but obviously on a harder day where the world feels painful and discouraging and nothing matters, that is a harder, that is a harder pill to swallow. And so I think I, as I, you know, crashed into my hormone rich teens, <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that just got harder. Did, did this David Starr Jordan guy, did he get into cataloging fish because he was like interested in fish or because that was just like an opportunity, like nobody was really doing that? 
It was a little of both. He, yeah, as a little boy, he uh, tried to name every single star in the sky. And he, he gave himself the middle name Star, right? Because he loves stars. <laughs> and that was sort of his award for naming every star. Um, and then he got into plants. And once he felt like he had mastered plants, what was next was fish. And he, had, he never saw the ocean until he was 21. Um, and so I think he just felt like, wow, well, this, this, is a, this is kind of the mystery that can entice me for the rest of my life. And, um, and that's what really captivated him. Uh, we're talking to Lulu Miller about her book, Why Fish Don't Exist. Um, the thing about this book, uh, Lulu, is is that it's sort of the first half, you know, it's it's a very glowing uh, account of the life of this guy, David Starr Jordan, because he was so taken with nature and he was so hardworking and smart and he just seemed to bounce back from every shortcoming. Um, and then things start to take a turn uh, as far as... <laughs> <laughs> kind of how 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 you started to view his life as the as the writer and the researcher. What was it like for you? What was the journey like to realize this guy was not maybe who you were thinking he was going to be? Well, it was it was hard because there was I mean there there was so much that was likable about him as a kid and he had all these philosophical guiding lights that are really appealing like be wary of beliefs and look to nature, not books, for knowledge. And, and, and then to see him get off on such a bad path, um, he got more and more infatuated with the concept that there was a hierarchy in nature, and he extended that to humans. And mm. like many scientific stories of his day, um, he became a eugenicist. But it wasn't just a little bit. He was one of the earliest and loudest proponents of eugenics in our country and did a whole lot of background moving and shaking to get policies on the book, many of which are still with us today in ways that completely blew my mind. So to watch him go so off the rails and, and not just ideologically, personally, the few things that made it onto the paper trail were shocking. Um, and so that was... You know, it just left me with more confusion. Um, but also, I think there's a lot of there were a lot of interesting lessons to glean from it. And if I'm super honest, I like a villain a little bit. So it made him really interesting to study. When in your project did you learn this twist about him? How far along were you in this 10 year journey? I was probably about three years in. And, and that was when I gained access through my then girlfriend's uh library account at the university she was working at to these old eugenicist texts he had written. Oh my God. Oh, wow. I actually started reading them and she was like, okay, you're taking out the human harvest, the blood of a nation. Like what red flag am I getting on my <laughs> account? No one else, right. no one else had taken these out since like the thirties. Um, and then me, Lulu Miller would like to renew it. Um, and, and <laughs> you're on a watch list somewhere now. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm sure I am. Um, and that's when it, you know, like when I really saw it in his words and he wasn't just carried along with the tide. Um, he was, incredibly passionate and incredibly hateful to certain types of people. Well, uh, we can mention this because this is just, I think, breaking news as of today. This is a guy who was at one time, I'll just kind of catch people up. He was the first president of Stanford University, right? Yep. And the, the, the way your book ends 
is 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 really in a point of sort of frustration. I, I took it as frustration that this this guy who who had some good qualities but also had a lot of really monstrous qualities was very venerated. You know, hundreds of school children showed up when he passed away and buildings were named for him at Stanford and he was just really held in high regard. And yet the news comes out today that Stanford University is taking his name off of the building. Yeah. As of today, they voted to rename it, and and I don't know what they're going to rename it, but uh, yeah, his his buildings are starting to fall. And to be clear, like faculty members, students, they were behind this big push. Um, but I think the book shined a little bit of light on yeah. just how how bad he was. The title of this book, Why Fish Don't Exist, actually gets to this kind of big reveal about your book, and and really about to some degree the. Um, <laughs> I don't want to say pointlessness, but a kind of final joke played on this guy, uh, David Starr Jordan. Um, well, what do you mean when you say fish don't exist? So what I mean is that recently scientists discovered that many of the creatures we typically think are fish are in fact more closely related to us than one another. And so fish as a scientifically meaningful category is totally bunk. And it's more like a gerrymandered line where we're excluding things that should be in there and we're putting things that should not be in there. And um, in a way, it's a metaphor for this thing we do all the time, which is group things together under one label that don't necessarily belong um, and don't necessarily have any real bearing on their reality and how words can often obscure complexity and nuance. Um, and so I try to show as as uh, clearly as I can in the book why this matters in nature, but then move on to sort of how we use it in everyday life. What is the quote that you have in the book? I think it's from Darwin that nature doesn't jump. What does that yeah. mean? It, it means he, it's natura non facit saltum in uh, That's what I was going to say. I just wanted to let you yeah, have the yeah. glory of saying it the fancy way. <laughs> and it's and it's that, yeah, nature has no jumps. It has no hard edges. Um, and, and Darwin, if you do like a, a, a close read, is saying time and time again that even species aren't a hard category in nature. The supposed line that separates species, their inability to produce fertile offspring, even that doesn't exist because there are exceptions to the rule. Um, and, and so his point is just that the, the categories we impose on nature, our desire to put them into different boxes, different species, different families, different genera, that, that's a human-made construction. And it's useful um, a lot of the time, but it does not reflect reality. And so it's this kind of wild thing where our intuition, that there's a deeper truth, a more complex truth behind our intuition, behind the lines we draw in nature. Lulu, thank you uh, so much for coming on the show. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. That was Lulu Miller right here on LiveWire. Her book is Why Fish Don't Exist. And of course, you can hear her one of the hosts of Radiolab. You're listening to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We got to take a short break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co.
Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, Elena, you really have more little odd facts in your brain than than anybody I've ever met. And that's that adds so much to the show. I mean, I feel like we need a spin-off episode where we just quiz you on because the question this week to the audience was what's something you're fascinated with that nobody else seems to care about? And every single thing that was brought up by the audience, you knew like three more things about. Oh no. No, I don't know anything about sinkholes. That one was in my wheelhouse because I grew up in a because <laughs> you grew up, I grew up in a, in a neighborhood without good drainage. <laughs> you're born so in a I sinkhole. Was. <laughs> I was. All right. It's time to uh, hear some music here on the show. And our musical guest this hour is actually from Portland, Oregon, but she's toured all over the world playing music. Uh, she's been on Jimmy Kimmel Live and also NPR's Tiny Desk Concert, uh, backing another friend of Livewire, Alan Stone. We are extremely excited to have her back on the show, Morea Massa. Welcome to Livewire. Hello. Wait, wait. So, so are we seeing like a, a group of musicians who have been essentially in a musician bubble this whole time? Yeah, these are my friends who live in this this beautiful studio. Wow. Yeah, this is like one of our first times playing music with people, and it feels really good. <laughs> so, uh, uh, we're gonna hear this song, "Honey," and I know there's a story behind it. Can you tell us a little bit about it? So my mother is a black woman. Um, she was born in Germany and she grew up, she was an adopt, adopted by an all-white family. And she has a lot of mental illness, um, so much so that um, in the last couple of years, I've had to completely distance myself from her. And that has been so hard. I think especially uh, as your mom, you want to bathe her in honey. You want to love her. Um, and you can't. And so I wrote this song um, just in that like push and pull of wanting to love her but not being able to and what that's like. Mm. Um, and I've been raising money uh, through this song. The first $400 that I raised through streaming from this song will go to Radical Rest, which is an incredible Portland organization. Um, and they're doing like once a month, week-long events with BIPOC practitioners, Black, Indigenous, POC, and people of color. Um, what we're doing is we're raising money for the BIPOC practitioners to get paid because I think in this time especially, it's so important for BIPOC folks to have therapists and healers that look like them. Mm. And so... That's what this song is about, and that's kind of what this whole release has been about, is just bringing awareness um, to mental health um, and wellness, um, especially in the BIPOC community. Uh, let's, uh, let's take a listen to Maria Massa uh, with the song Honey. these boundaries but you keep running after me when all I need is sorry truth is I keep questioning the right thing retracing every word I say I cut the line but now I feel so lonely was I too harsh was it all in my head you still got my taking all of me not to bathe you in honey honey 
If we were doing this live, that we would have everybody at home or everybody in the audience sing along. So now, just if you're at home, also if if y'all want to sing with us, that'd be great. I don't know if we can hear it, but <laughs> it'll. I, I can see your mouths moving. <laughs> Masa, right here on Livewire. Her album, Heart in the Wild, Side A, is out and available right now. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be heading to the movies and talking to one of our dear friends on the program, the always wonderful Lindy West. And we're going to be talking to a director named Kirsten Johnson, who made a documentary about her father. It's called Dick Johnson is Dead. And I can genuinely say it is unlike any documentary I've ever seen. So you don't want to miss that conversation. We will see you right here next week for that episode of Livewire. Speaking of episodes of Livewire, we found ourselves at the end of this one. A huge thanks to our guests, Sopan Deb, Lulu Miller, and Morea Massa. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Mara Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Jennifer Vo is our social media manager. Our music is composed by A. Walker Spring. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the State of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Martin Worm of Seattle, Washington. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you. 